0: This is Design School as a podcast for the growing designer, those interested in design, starting their career in design, or looking for a reminder of why they went into design.
1: On this episode, we talk with Cynthia Lawson Jaramillo, Dean of the School of Design Strategies, Associate Dean at Parsons School of Design, and the Conference Chair of the Digitally Engaged Learning, or Dell Conference. Cynthia talks of being an artist who teaches design and finding her way to the discipline through a passion of art, a background in electrical engineering, and the worldview of growing up as a third culture kid. Cynthia discusses the practice and considerations of integrated design including politicizing acts of helping, removing assumptions that you have what it takes to make someone else's life better, and the importance of how we each represent history when walking into any given situation.
0: Cynthia Lawson Jaramillo, thank you for joining us.
2: Thank you so much for having me. It's really such a pleasure.
0: It's, uh, it's great to see you. Um, it's been a while since uh, we've chit chatted. I think the last time was um, for the uh, Dell conference in Texas uh, a year or two ago. Is that correct?
2: Yes, in San Marcos. I think it was last year, though last year, it feels okay. like much longer than that. Yeah, yeah like a, almost a year and a half.
0: It, yeah. it feels appropriate, too, that the, uh, the talk that I gave was about uh, design, education, and podcasting. And here we are on a design education podcast. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Absolutely, it was also appropriate that 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 at that conference we announced uh, that this year's or soon after that conference, then we picked the theme for this year's Dell conference, uh, which was hybrid. And little did we know how yeah. how uh, applicable that applicable that would feel to all design educators.
0: Indeed, indeed. Well, we usually like to start people off by uh, hearing about their journey into design. And uh, so maybe if you can walk us through, um, how did you get to here today?
2: Absolutely. Happy to. So I'll start off by saying I don't call myself a designer. I call myself an artist uh, who teaches design. I'm an associate professor of integrated design at Parsons School of Design at the New School. And I joined Parsons about 17, 18 years ago, and um, it was through this really multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary undergraduate program called Integrated Design. And they were interested in my profile, bringing together art and technology. Um, I was absolutely designing, and I would say that my now that I look back I can see how I was introduced to design in my studies um, in electrical engineering which was my undergraduate so quite an odd um, eclectic path perhaps but I can look back and see how much I was in fact designing through a particular lens of engineering through particular you know problems uh, and, and problem solutions let's say that we're all technology based math based science based um, but yeah the 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 path at Parsons has been really wonderful arriving as a fine artist and then growing into a an educator that that crosses disciplines uh, within design and and beyond into the social sciences and um, focusing on social impact and uh, in most recent years also focused on areas like social innovation and entrepreneurship. And just this past January, I started um, as the Dean of the School of Design Strategies at Parsons. And there it's also been interesting to be able to look back to my, you know, really formation in engineering and see how much that applies to to what we're learning and, and teaching and researching in design strategies, strategic design. Transdisciplinary design, um, a lot of uh, areas through which we connect um, to systems thinking, for example, which is uh, one of the STEM STEM core areas. Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I was I was curious. I was going to bring that up, which was um, you know I bet that perspective of electric or engineering background coming into design and in STEM. I guess it would be interesting to hear your perspective of how those. Are deeply related, or what design has to kind of bring into that picture, or even the fine arts of STEM? I mean, sometimes we refer to it as steam or stemmed. Uh, yes. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I would be curious about some of your perspective on that.
2: I had not heard stemmed. I guess that's oh. a good way to to solve for the D being a little bit awkward as uh, yeah. instead of the A. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I had I had growing up, I think the traditional systems of K through 12 schooling around the world. I grew up living mostly in Latin America and was privileged to study in um, private schools that also had curricula from the United States. So there were these kind of you know, dual curricular paths, both the local as well as the, the US systems. In my education, really juxtaposed art and science, or art and math. And I think some of the more sophisticated um, approaches to K through 12 teaching and learning really acknowledge and celebrate math, music, the arts, engineering, making, coding, electronics, um, as having many intersections and overlaps. I now can look back and see that, but at the time as I was growing up, I was definitely a science and math uh, and technology person and didn't necessarily explore the creative uh, aspects as much. I was then really into music and it was in my um, thesis for electrical engineering when I met this uh, professor Juan Reyes who was... Looking to collaborate between music and electrical engineering and I was like, oh, what do you mean? There's this overlap between these two disciplines that I had been taught were 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 very different and the cultures of that kind of education and The people that are attracted to one versus the other. There are few overlaps in in that regard And so now I I you know of course experiencing the overlaps and now looking at how several of, for example, the graduate programs that I oversee as Dean are STEM designated through this uh, focus in systems thinking, um, that really for me solidifies, let's say formally, within academia uh, and absolutely within practice, how much overlap there is between uh, design and and various parts of STEM and, and specifically engineering within my own formation
1: that's really really interesting yeah one other uh, area you talked about was also around social impact what does um i guess what kind of work uh, are you doing in that area i think one thing i'm always considered in is you know work for social impact versus design for good you know um and i think social impact um takes some additional considerations i'm guessing to work within um, and understanding and i'm I'm curious about some of the work you're doing in in the social impact space, but also what are the considerations one might need to consider to kind of enter or think about working in that space?
2: yeah, these are great questions so uh, when i when I started at Parsons, I very early on um, through through and and with my colleague um, the person who hired me at the time, uh, Gwen Keithley, she and I developed a series of intensives, and um, that evolved into being like a, a consistent summer intensive mm-hmm. at a at this wonderful design school in Dominican Republic called Escuela de Diseño Altos de Chavon. And Gwen and I were interested in th- through through the cores of integrated design, this kind of acknowledgement that that the biggest um, and and most challenging problems of the world can only be addressed and potentially solved through collaboration, through the transcending of disciplines, Mm -hmm. through, um, thoughtful and embedded, let's say community engaged work. Mm Um, I really, you know, my first few experiences running this, uh, and, and, teaching or co-teaching these courses in dominican republic were really i I felt they were such a gift i mean i i couldn't believe i was being paid to do this to be able to go back to latin america where i had grown up with students with colleagues of the university many some were also from latin america many had not uh, ever been to latin america and to um, experience this design school which is part of a cultural foundation which is inside a um, a high-end uh, resort that has tourists and a golf course and beaches and villas,
1: mm. and
2: also has these neighboring communities, uh, fishermen's village, a town, uh, many towns close by where um, where boys are, are are raised to compete to to join Major League Baseball in the states. Right, all these these kind of baseball camps um, in these. Quite poor areas of Dominican Republic, and so we were exploring through this course that kind of um, contrast between the campus that we were in and the the, the towns that were, that were outside. Um, at the time, we I was calling it community engaged design, thinking about how we were through design engaging with communities and the issues they may have. Mm-hmm. I When I started presenting at conferences, this was in the early knots, the term being used at the time was design for social responsibility. And I'm glad we've moved away from that a little bit because I don't know that any designer would ever say that they are designing irresponsibly. So right. it's very easy. It's very easy to claim I'm socially responsible. there's a danger in picking terms that are easy to claim because then mm-hmm. it, it it really um, washes out the, the rigor let's say in it. Design for the other 90% this uh, you know very well-known design exhibition that was a term being used. Design for the other 90% that also was problematic because of the othering that was happening right mm-hmm. who are these other and and why am I also not the other um, and i've been interested in how language uh, has evolved and i've been really trying to keep up with how the methodologies have evolved so up until quite recently there were few alternatives to introduce students to this kind of work other than idos human-centered design toolkit Mm -hmm. Uh, you know they they really did an amazing job in in making that a a globalized trend in many ways within um, within design practice, but also within the design academy. And most recently, very inspired by the work of um, Antoinette Carroll's Creative Reaction Lab uh, with the Equity and Community Center Design Field Guide, which really acknowledges that the only way that true social impact can come about is if the community themselves or ourselves are the ones designing so there is no designer and other there is no designer and community it is really about you want to do this work go in with humility and with your facilitator maybe listener absolutely listener hat on maybe your educator hat on bring in your the skills that you can put to work to um to share to uh to empower to fundraise to um to really allow the community themselves to be the ones who are doing the designing so that's you know it's been quite it's been this 17-year trajectory, let's say, from these first courses that I did in Dominican Republic. Two recent projects that I could talk about it, since 2007, I've been involved working with the artisan sector. So I currently direct a research lab that I co-founded called the Deed Research Lab. And we look at what is the role that designers and entrepreneurs have played in extracting money and value from indigenous artisans. Mm. The the statistic that keeps us going is that the artisan sector is valued at a more than $500 billion industry globally. Wow. And, and the, and all of the fieldwork research that we have done in both Guatemala and in Colombia has been with artisans who are living in poverty, sometimes have a, a, an actual floor in their house, but often one room homes uh, have, Many basic needs that are unmet, and and are the holders of centuries-old techniques and knowledge that that we love and we celebrate and we consume, and we are convinced through marketing that we are doing good by purchasing a thing, a th- let's say a woven textile. And through our fieldwork research, we're questioning where is that money really staying? Is it staying in the the middle people layer uh, that designers and entrepreneurs occupy um, Mm -hmm. and how could, and what would it really mean to have an artisan sector that is not just capitalist commerce-based, but really considers the future of artisans and their children. Mm -hmm. And then the other project um, I could talk about is called community engagement, uh, community engagement 101. And it's a more of a curricular project that I've been working on with with some colleagues at Parsons that looks at what is that core curriculum right that that 101 class that every student should go through before um, engaging with this kind of work and so we look at um, we, we question and criticize extractive models we look at uh, social justice um, equity, issues of, of power and privilege as a lot of the, the foundational skills, conversations, fluencies, literacies that any designer should have before engaging in projects with um, people with different privileges than their own, different backgrounds, different cultural contexts than the ones that they may be familiar with.
0: That's so fascinating, both of of those types of projects. Uh, I'm curious, especially for the the second one, for the Community Engagement 101, um, are you finding it accessible uh, for some sort of different perspective on uh, design history or design education history or or the understanding of, of design outside of a Western perspective? Are you finding text? Are you finding the, the, oh. the perspective to be mainly Western, Western Eurocentric slash um, um, North American? Or are there other perspectives that are able to be provided through uh, understanding design as not just the application of a computer, you know, starting with the Bauhaus and moving forwards.
2: Right. I, you know... It, I think we would get caught up in that word design, and we would probably struggle to find a design that is not interventionist. I'm quite inspired by, there was a recent uh, text by um, uh, a professor at Tandon School of Engineering at NYU, Ansari. I'm, um, I'm blanking out on his name, but maybe it's a resource we can share with listeners. Um, who really says design cannot be decolonized uh,
1: mm. you
2: know we can find de- decolonial uh, or decolonized ways of working ways of of coming together ways of addressing uh, issues um, but design by definition has a um, kind of a, a colonial or external um, modality in, in some ways. So I'm quite inspired by anthropology uh, and anthropologists who find our community engaged designing um, you know, trends really problematic because anthropologists pride themselves in not being interventionists at all. And designers, we're not happy unless we're making and really getting in there and it's not enough for me to study about a place from a book Mm -hmm. our students will always be very vocal and say here are the limits to the work unless I'm able to go and be there and spend time and work with people and you know there are these for example co-designing and and all these various ways of working that we um as designers think that we can only possibly do if we're actually there. So, I don't. I don't know that we can find. Yeah, I think. I think we can find other ways of being, but I don't think that they're called design. I think they're called. Yeah, well, maybe anthropology, or maybe um, yeah. maybe other ways of of existing.
1: Yeah. Well, that was one thing I was gonna ask about when you were talking about that first project, which was, you know, essentially. Um, uh you know historically like we always consider you know in the past what may have been indigenous designers, we call them artisans. When in Oof. when in effect like they're not doing a lot different things, right? I mean, the difference between them and you know modern day designers, they're still solving problems using materials for things in a somewhat with an artistic bent. Right. Um, there's aesthetics involved and, you know, um, but in some ways, you know, the long history of it is doing it quite a bit def- like better, <laughs> you know, and more sustainably than I mean, and this is one thing I've been thinking about a lot lately is, you know, when we're trying to figure out how to say like uh, fix today's modern problems, how little job we do of looking at the past um, and looking yeah. at how it's been done before. Um But also this conversation around decolonizing design. I would love to read that paper um, uh, because in some ways it does make sense that, you know, could we decolonize it when it is a concept that's so wrapped up in that. Um, But also it's what do we consider design, you know, and oftentimes we, we degrade the artisans to, you know, being a lower, you know, tier in some way or define it differently um yeah
2: yes that's it uh, it's fascinating and these mm-hmm. the um, artisans don't have the degrees and mm-hmm. the level of education that gives them the permission per our societal frameworks and rules to call themselves designers and i have had conversations with uh designers who have for example founded an artisan sector company and i will ask them are you know are are artisans designers and oh absolutely yes they are designing and then i will question then what is the role of let's say you as a designer or why are they why, why don't we allow them right through these brands or this this these commercial platforms that we create why do we externalize the design and then there are all these reasons. well, artisans can't possibly understand the trends mm-hmm. the the you know the color palettes, the quality control needed all of this those those same brands are marketing their products as being ethical or sustainable, and in fact, those artisan communities had a way more sustainable way of living mm-hmm. before all of these um, designers wanting to do good arrived. Right. And there were, you know, many steps in between. Many others arrived perhaps before the designers. In Guatemala, we see that the first to have arrived are perhaps um, m- missionaries yeah. or members of the Peace Corps who, you know, Peace Corps trying to alleviate the guilt of having been complicit in in the dictatorship in Guatemala that that caused uh, the you know massacres of indigenous people are then now going in as peace corps to do good we're here to help it's like well yeah you you made the mess in the first place not peace corps per se but the u.s um and so there's a lot of this the history happened the people doing good would be well served to understand the history and how we are representing that history and we need to be very careful to not be accomplices for other additional harms but yeah the sustainability thing you know some of the backstrap loom weavers that i've worked with in guatemala who are mayan um, in their ancestry They'll spend months weaving a weepil, which is a traditional blouse, and they will wear that um, for for years. Mm-hmm. And they will pass it on, and it becomes a family heirloom. And um, but it's it's so expensive to make. It takes it takes months, and so now it's cheaper for them to go to what is called the paka, which is a pop up shop that's created in the small villages around central and and south america where they can buy any of the these garments that you see around me here um used clothing from the u.s get shipped down there and sold very cheaply again helping to decimate these Mm -hmm. cultural practices that were in fact way more sustainable than we could ever aspire to be Mm -hmm. through our our brand solutions
1: yeah
0: it's and that in itself is kind of a design practice if we think about it you know that the the way that we have strategized and have reconstructed the the need for consumerism the need for more the need for uniqueness uh outside of the the craft the the handcraftedness of it mm-hmm. but rather the uh uh, it is easier for me to just, you know, get rid of this and buy a new one or get rid of this and get the latest one, which is still a zipper, uh, you know, a hole for my arms. Uh, you know, it, it's still the same sort of thing. But, um, yeah, I think there, there is a process of design that is very focused on, you know, the creation of something new, always needing to create um, yes which is novelty kind of detrimental. yeah the novelty <laughs> yeah. novelty of it yeah. Yeah. yeah
2: and that's where i you know really designing systems can do us good because we can get the <laughs> the creativity um out there without necessarily needing to create more stuff so i've been delighted for example my colleagues in the fashion curricula at parsons focusing in the last you know five to ten years focusing more not only on the on designing garments and creating collections but also on systems and strategies within within fashion but that it not only be about putting out more things into the world but in fact thinking about um you know on the there's certainly a, an interest in circular e- economy but many of my colleagues criticize even that circularity is not enough what we need to focus on is degrowth and um, it isn't just about upcycling garments. So I think systems and strategies for me is, is a great place to be in when we, when we talk about this because it's, again, the designer being able to design without necessarily having this um, material impact and, and footprint, carbon, negative carbon footprint on, on everything we do.
1: Yeah. I mean, I was thinking about that and I was. Um... You know, going back to what we were talking about before, which was, you know, the designers coming in at that mid-level and kind of, you know, their relationship with the artisans. And I was thinking about, well, how could that be done differently? (laughs) And when you think about designer then being defined more through the systems-based thinking and then using that, you know, designer as facilitator role to come in and help facilitate Setting up a system that could maybe be more beneficial for for them or something like that Um,
2: Yes, yeah, and if you ask artisans What they hope for? They hope for their children to be able to finish high school Mm -hmm. hopefully hopefully go to college and Get a, a white collar job Yeah, so they don't um Many of the artisan sector founders that we have worked with or have uh, interviewed within the the research lab um, talk about cultural preservation, concern about cultural heritage, loss of knowledge, loss of techniques, traditions, but that's also a very privileged um, perspective and it's Mm -hmm. it's, uh, often not shared uh, by the the artisans with whom I've met. Now, if I go in and say to the artisans, you can sustain a living, you'll be able to keep your kids in school if you make more of these backstrap loom woven textiles that we're going to sell to the, let's say, interior design luxury market or whatever it may be, they'll absolutely do it. But it's it's reducing the, the treasure that they hold in their ancestral um, Artisan knowledge to the transactional it's really it, mm-hmm. it at the end of the day it's about income generation and we've done these various workshops um around for example hopes and dreams and you know it'll be about w- what is my my hope i hope i can make enough money this year to repair the the leak in my roof that almost causes my house to come down every time there's a hurricane that comes by or you know whatever Mm -hmm. it's just the the needs are so they're still at the very basic needs unmet level that um that makes these conversations really challenging and i um at parsons we have such an international student population and i myself uh grew up as a third culture kid speaking different languages, living in, in different countries. I, it was such a gift of an upbringing. And never once did I was I concerned that I'm not preserving my culture. So it's something I talk a lot about, students who are interested in going this route of maybe founding a social impact um, enterprise, for example, focused on the artisan sector. If cultural heritage is one of the big drivers, then I ask them, how much does it keep them up at night that they themselves are not preserving their own culture? And that always starts off, starts with some laughs, but it's, a, it's um, it seems to have become a, a question that is sufficient to then prompt all sorts of reflecting that mm-hmm. they need to do on all of the assumptions that they are making about the privileges that, that they have and that they want to keep, but that they don't necessarily think that others should have. And and they would probably say, Oh, absolutely, I think everyone should have a right to do this. But the business models that they are putting in place are not necessarily, um, let's say, elevating the artisan to a world of opportunity which is functioning in a, in a globalized world, let's say, in the way that we are all comfortable doing through these virtual platforms and translation and access, networking.
0: Do you think that has something to do, partly with the way that we have focused our education um, about some sort of outcome, um, about some sort of uh, uh, focus on a, a career path and or a job, as opposed to thinking about a holistic life that we lead? It reminds me a little bit of a faculty member that I had in undergrad who had said that the purpose is not for me to do, but the purpose is for me to to think. Chad and uh, Cynthia, both of you teach right now. And do you see students that are like that, that are looking for understanding their place in the world, looking to understand their purpose? Or is it really about, let me get as much as I can in order to get out there and, and do
2: yeah, I think there's a little bit of both, and we certainly have a responsibility as a very expensive institution of higher education <laughs> to ensure that there's a job and a career path at the end. I have been, um, I have wondered for, for a while now, ever since I started some of my administrative roles at the new school, what would it mean for, for universities to be held liable for the debt? that our alumni have? And how would we change what we do and or how we charge for it if we then had to, let's say we were um, co-signers of a loan or something, mm-hmm. right? That, that, that the educational institution would need to carry that responsibility. We don't want to then default to just training for jobs and I would fear that uh, that you know the the liberal arts and humanities would be even in more peril if we took that approach. And I think the student debt crisis in the United States is an absolute crisis um, that we all have to, any of us in higher ed and and anyone um, you know, raising kids and anyone encouraging, or seeing friends applying for grad school right so we all we all can see that so there's there's the, that relationship that very real and very stressful and anxiety-ridden relationship between education and debt that many of our institutions of of um, any, many of our private universities are are complicit in um and but and i also I'm delighted to see just just this semester I was teaching in our transdisciplinary design MFA program, and I taught an intensive module called the geopolitics of helping with um, a sociologist Dr. Barbara Adams, and the you know we one of the uh, one of the fieldwork principles we use in the Deed Lab is we don't use the word help in our work, and we anyone interested in social impact eliminate that word from your vocabulary because it forces you to put into words what you're actually what is the actual change you're hoping to bring about and it um it really erases the assumptions that you are making that you think you have what it takes to make somebody's life better or to, to be able to solve somebody's problems and the way that the students engage with this material was really amazing they were they were inspired they were challenged by politicizing acts of helping and then immediately questioning their interest and the the role that they want to play within this kind of context globally and uh, and the challenge that we have as educators they were they also felt paralyzed by the content we were discussing because they were like well i i can't possibly do anything in this space around social impact or social yeah. engagement yeah. because I don't want to perpetuate these quite um, colonial models. And so what happens there, right? We all, I also want to make sure that these students are graduating from an MFA and able to be um, successful and productive within, let's say a design agency or, um, or maybe creating their own design studio. They, they still are going to have to pay, pay the bills they're still going to have to um, potentially pay, pay off the debt incurred during their studies. And so there's that wanting to expose students while they're students and they can still use the university time as a sandbox for the provocative and the, the challenging and the intellectual. And also knowing that they are going to be working in, potentially in these organizations that we are critiquing um, during these intensives, for example, so there's you know there's a lot there. I I don't know that there's an obvious answer or solution. I think um, erasing debt is is for me is fascinating as a concept. Yeah. Uh, higher education as a as a human right, I think is also very interesting. And I'm also inspired by. Uh, institutions of further education that are not necessarily accredited, so something like Chaos Pilots in Europe that doesn't grant degrees but companies stand in line to hire those who graduate from Chaos Pilots because they are the radical thinkers, the innovators, they are um, really pushing practice uh, in design and, and um, in government and in various places in, in new and, and exciting ways.
1: One thing I was thinking about in tandem with that was is, is how the purpose of higher education has changed in the last century. <laughs> higher education didn't always necessarily have the purpose to teach job skills per se. I mean, it taught you an area of knowledge, but a lot of it was for personal development and kind of exploring curiosity and, you know, playing the role of academia in society, which is very different as the world becomes much more specialized is almost to actually require, you know, the skills beyond, you know, basic education to be needed. And um, it's interesting how that plays out with money um, and debt. And, you know, the purpose, I think, of what JP is talking about, which is, you know, I always placed it, which JP was the first professor that was curious about how I thought. <laughs> and he cared about teaching us how to think more than how to do. And that was a huge shift and pivot. And what drew me to design was because of the way JP taught it. You know, uh, as I learned more, you know, mathematics, science, everything is a gray area, right? But in design, I feel like we re- embrace that a little bit more. Especially in earlier education, Um, and all of a sudden it was stepping in and like, oh well, I have to figure this out. (laughs) There's not one solution that I'm built or you know trying to figure out that's already there waiting. It's um, it's there for me to discover, which I think was I think back you know when I was grad school we were talking a little bit about design being the new liberal art in some way embracing that mindset is going back to teaching how how to teach people how to think more critically in a way and embrace the curiosity um rather than training for a specific purpose
2: yeah Um, absolutely yeah and and we're often training for the job for the first job mm -hmm, for the first job out of school yeah especially in design school but you know i i see our alumni five, 10 years out. And let's say from our undergraduate programs and fairly quickly, they are no longer designing. Mm -hmm. They are often now managing teams or projects or they're Mm -hmm. needing all sorts of skills that, that are not, uh, not, that were not necessarily in their portfolio. Um, But, but that we absolutely Uh, let's say, in the integrated design program, you know, focus on collaboration and presentation and all of these, you know, interpersonal skills beyond the the vocational technical that will also be required for them to be able to land, again, that first job out of undergrad. Mm -hmm. So there's that, yeah, that careful balance that we have to play. I'm, I love the, um, I'm a fan of following the, the innovations in the education space, again, not the, not the degree space, but the, you know, the kind of coding academy, you complete the academy, you have a job guaranteed, which immediately allows you to, to pay back any debt you may have incurred. I think all of that is really probably the, the biggest uh, external uh, factor that is causing a change across the the us uh, mm-hmm. uh, system of higher ed yeah. um as long as education is not free we're going to continue to to be embedded within this very neoliberal framework of the the function of a part any particular course
1: um so cynthia um we're coming to the end of our time together um Uh, We usually tie things up with um, what JP likes to call the recommendation list. Oh, yeah. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I usually like to ask people about things they're reading and listening to. And I'm curious if there's something that you've read recently that you felt was impactful that maybe hasn't gotten enough play yet or read.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I have several things to recommend. One would be... um... I've been following with a lot of, with great curiosity, the work of Ahmed Ansari. He's a professor at at uh, NYU's Tandon School of Engineering, and he um, he's you know established that there's there's no way to to decolonize design, that design by definition would have a, a kind of colonial framework, and that perhaps. And this is now my interpretation of it. And what, what I'm interested in is what is it that we mean? What are the other terminologies that we would use that are not in fact design when we are thinking about decolonial models as designers? So if it's not possible, because by definition that is designing, then what would we be calling those, let's say, acts or interventions or, or ways of working? Um, I'm, uh, I could also recommend, I don't know if it's been shared before on this podcast, but uh, Leslie Ann Noel's work, um, also in this space around um, decolonizing a bit, very engaged in the conversation around the pluriverse and the, the pluriversal in design, and she has an interesting project called the Critical Designer's Alphabet, which is a really interesting toolkit um, that uh that that designers uh listening may may be interested to to add to their own toolkits um and a and a book that i've been just bringing up so often since i read it is anand uh winners take all and it's not a very it's not let's say an academic book uh, mm-hmm. it's more of a mainstream publication and it has gotten quite a bit of press and a lot of readership, but I don't know that designers are using it a lot. And, and anyone interested in design and social impact would be well served by reading that book because it really, to me, puts into question how much we can actually bring about in terms of systemic change mm-hmm. within the larger, um, let's say societal capitalistic frameworks within which we are functioning. And so in this book, he criticizes the kind of the, the main premise of it is we are as society allowing billionaires to be both hoarders and helpers. And so he says we have allowed as a society and through our, everything from our, tax haven regulatory system to our press, media, and praising of uh, you know, of success of entrepreneurship and of this kind of the, the hero worshipping, let's say, of, of entrepreneurship, have allowed this hoarding of wealth to happen through, you know, we, we see it as a as a signal of success. And we also have allowed the hoarders of wealth, um, to then become the helpers of the poor, the helpers of the problems that their hoarding may have been um, accomplices in,
1: mm-hmm. and so
2: look at um, the 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 found the philanthropic foundations and the donations that Mark Zuckerberg, uh, Bill Gates, especially get a lot of of press and notoriety and celebration for doing. Yeah. And should we not also be questioning how the way that they accumulated wealth, in fact, perpetuated some of the inequities that they are now trying to help Mm. uh, through their donations. And the donations are but small drops (laughs) if we look at their their large buckets of wealth. So I I find that book to be really fascinating. It has a lot of um, case studies within it. Especially in the in the technology space, and um, and designers interested in in designing for good and in design for social impact, um, I think would find um, some some good takeaways there. Nice. And then the final recommendation on the design academy design school space, I'm most inspired by uh, Dr. Dori Tunstall, who's the dean of um, of uh, the design school in at um, at OCAD in in Canada, uh, Ontario College of Art and Design, and uh, and what she has done um, as the first um, black dean of any design school uh, globally, what she has done around really modeling what it means to create to bring about um, anti-racist, anti-colonial. Uh, frameworks and curricula to a design school I think is quite exemplary Um, and uh, and yeah nothing nothing specific there other than to you know tune into um, into her social media and uh, talks she gives and you know really try to try to find where she may be speaking next um, because I just find her talks to be very inspiring and I can plug the She did keynote at the Dell conference uh, this past September. And once we have her, her video, her, her talk up on our website, we could also link to that.
0: Wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you. I usually like to ask a question, especially this season, as we are uh, still within the pandemic, um, how people are coping. What is it that they're doing? Uh, How are their lives changing? Um, And, how are you finding the, the joy and and, and uh, patience these days?
2: Yeah, joy, I find every moment that I'm with my five-year-olds. Um, I have twins who are five years old, and they are a gift to me during a pandemic. I mean, they're a gift generally, but such a gift to have them during a pandemic because they require that we be very present and in the moment and with them Um, they're not necessarily they have some anxieties related to the virus and they talk about it quite a bit but but keep us really present and focused on the things that matter the most i um i don't miss the subway i've really loved um The, the working from home has, has been okay for me. I, I miss the serendipitous moments of being on campus and bumping into people in the hallways or people stopping by my office, these kinds of things. Um, but otherwise, it's been lovely to, to be able to cook. I've been cooking much more. I can make dinner almost every evening. So that's, that also feels like a gift and a joy. And, um, and I'm very much looking forward to not going back to the design school of the before times but really holding on to what has worked well what we have done for example the dell conference that i co-organized this year was the first time we did it online and free and the diversity of voices we were able to bring to that conference because of that um you know really is is a platform that perhaps should continue in that way and that we shouldn't just default to oh, now we can be on campus, pay registration fees of $600 and fly halfway around the world to give a talk for 10 or 15 minutes. Um, so the unsustainability of the before times is something that I'm happy to get to do away with and um, and perhaps capture where we are now um, Yeah, as design educators, really kind of embodying and practicing what we're preaching in our classrooms.
0: Indeed. Well, Cynthia, thank you so much for your time. It has been a great pleasure and honor to, uh, to have this chance to chat and catch up with you.
2: It was really wonderful. I really appreciate the invitation and thank you so much for having me. Thank you. This
1: is Design School is recorded in the field where design happens.
0: The music for This is Design School is composed and recorded by Michael R. Clark.
1: You can find Michael online at musiclabtacoma.com.
0: For additional information about each episode, visit
1: thisisdesign.school. We'd love to hear what you like, what you don't like, and what you'd want to hear in the future. Follow the podcast on Twitter at
0: TIDSpodcast.
1: Also, don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes, and share us with your designer friends. Bye for now.